My guest, Professor Martha Nussbaum, is one of the world's most prominent moral and legal philosophers. A professor of law and ethics at the University of Chicago, she has, over the course of 16 published books, written at length about theories of justice, the fragility of human goodness, and the intelligence of emotions. She has also played a major role in the development of what's called the capabilities approach, which has been used by international organizations as an alternative to such economic measures as GNP to determine what people are able to do and to be. And she picks up this theme in her latest book called Creating Capabilities, the Human Development Approach. Professor Nussbaum, welcome to our Lili Speaking Series. Well, thank you very much. I'm glad to be invited. First of all, I have to say that in preparation for this interview, I have really enjoyed reading your books. Um, I can't say that I read... I've read them all. Well, I think it would be but, a great waste of your time. But but I ha- but more than half, and and having read those books and those books in turn goaded me to read other books by other moral philosophers. I do feel that I've been on this rather wonderful intellectual journey over the last three or four months. Uh, but having read those books, I do feel I have something to confess to you, and that is, you know, when I think about what it would be like to live in a society that's truly just, the first thing I think about are all the entirely unfair or at least certainly undeserved advantages I've had in my own life, Mm -hmm. starting with my parents and the very lovely bar mitzvah they were able to afford Mm -hmm. for me and the private schools they sent me to, etc. So I'm wondering, what do you say to someone who would say to you, you know, Professor, as an abstract concept, this idea of social justice really sounds good to me. But then when I think about the fine dining that I do every week and the trips to Europe and the private schools I want to send my kids to, you know, I'm just not sure that this social justice thing is is right for me. Uh, what, what do you say to such a person? Well, look, um, I think this is where I began, too. And, you know, I, too, had all these privileges. I, I didn't have my bat mitzvah until two years ago because I converted. But uh, in any case, uh, I had the, the Christian equivalent in those days. And, uh, yeah, but, you know, when I was 16, I went on a foreign exchange program and lived with a family of factory workers in Swansea in Britain, South Wales. And I suddenly saw what the life of poverty was like. And I saw how the health of those people was undermined by bad nutrition. Their health was also compromised by having an outhouse rather than indoor plumbing. You know, I never thought about Mm -hmm. living with an outhouse, right? And uh, I also, I think the deepest thing was that I saw how their spirits and their hopes were worn down. I mean, they did not want improvement in a way. They didn't fight for it. They didn't take advantage even of opportunities in schools that were open to them because they were just they become hopeless. They were weak physically, I think, just through bad nutrition, and, and they just didn't really <clears throat> want to strive anymore. And so I guess what I, I... I was so shocked by that. So this experience that you describe uh, that you had at the age of 16, did that mark the start of your rebelliousness? Because as you describe your upbringing, you, so you, you lived in a, a rarefied environment. Your mom uh, could trace her ancestors back to the 
the Mayflower. Your dad was a high-powered lawyer. I mean, your people were the kind of people that my my people would refer to as Oat Goyim. Uh, but you were re- somewhat rebellious, were well, you not? Not exactly, because my father's father was a factory worker. Okay. And he came from Georgia, and he was very poor. And by dint of his brilliance and effort, he got a law degree from Mercer by the time he was 21. And he was practicing law very young, and he supported all his younger siblings. So my father was the story of what effort can achieve. And that was fine. It taught me a lot. And and he was always for the will, never letting down, and so on. But then he believed that was the whole story. Mm. And so he thought that if African Americans did not succeed, it was because they were lazy and didn't work. And of course, it was a much more complicated story than that. So, you know, at first I was a, a libertarian, and I worked for Barry Goldwater. But then when I got there, I began to understand what racism was, because I saw all these people, not Goldwater. I think he was a principled libertarian who voluntarily integrated his family stores. But the people who worked for Goldwater were racists, who were taking advantage of that no-law idea to just uh, stop progress on the racial front. And uh, so, yeah, I mean, I had terrible fights with my father about race. He was not just uh, about effort. He was also a racist, and he didn't like Jews either. When I married a Jew, he didn't come to the wedding. So, you know, I had terrible fights about all those things. Uh, But the economic thing... Did he he disown you? Did did he go that far? Disown, no, no. I mean, I knew that he would love my husband when he got to know him because they were just exactly the same. They were stubborn, and they were very uh, cantankerous, and, uh, you know, in some ways quite similar. And and indeed, he he did uh, get to to love him sooner or later. But uh, I did understand what prejudice was because he would say, oh, Jews are greedy, Jews are vulgar. But, of course... I thought this family from Vienna that was so refined and, uh, you know, so culturally literate, and he would uh, embrace them. But, of course, it wasn't about that. It was about the fact that they were Jews. Uh-huh. And uh, so there, too, I understood that racism, you know, parades a bunch of pseudo-reasons on its behalf, but it's really about some deep-rooted disgust. And, and so all my work on disgust and stigmatization starts from from that point. And you say you had your bar mitzvah a, bar mitzvah. Bar mitzvah a couple <laughs> years ago? I did in 2008 because having been a convert at the age of 21 I just never learned enough and I, I, I'm i an amateur singer and I wanted to learn the candelation and I wanted to be able to sing in temple and of course it's hard for me trained in western music where there's always a score so I thought fine I'll, I'll just learn it and I had a wonderful cantor who trained me and then this one of the great giants of Reformed Judaism, Arnold Jacob Wolf, helped me through it with the Devar Torah and blessed me at the ceremony. So it was a great thing. So as one Jewish person to another, what exactly was it that made you want to become Jewish? Justice. Yeah. I mean, I thought Christianity, as I was experiencing it, was a religion about let's take advantage of our privileges in this life and let justice wait for the world to come. Mm-hmm. And Judaism, uh, of course, it was a certain period and a certain type of American Jew that, that I converted into that family. Uh, it was all about uh, doing justice in this world for the downtrodden. And, of course, you know, the Reform Jewish movement was all about that for a very long time. I think now that's been soft-pedaled a little 
little bit, but if you look at the old platforms of the reform movement, like the Pittsburgh platform, uh, they absolutely say that social justice is uh, is the one thing that's required for all Jews, and, and that's still my basic orientation. I was led to believe, having read the preface of one of your books, there was just a little bit more to it than that. Uh, you describe uh, in this book your ill at ease with your WASP background, and you wrote, quote, I found the atmosphere stifling, emotionally arid, and not at all conducive to love. There was little talk at dinner and a lot of polite silence. And then by contrast, you describe approvingly the comparative no noisiness and emotional openness of American Jewish culture, which reminded me, did you ever see the film Woody Allen, uh, Annie Hall oh, by course. Woody Allen? Yeah. And, there's, yeah. and there's this famous scene where they're eating dinner, and one side of the screen is the Wasp family mm -hmm. eating very properly, talking very quietly to one another, and then there's the other side, uh, the Jewish family sitting around the table, and they're screaming at each other and insulting each other. Were you kind of drawn to that, uh, you know, the, the Jewish side of the screen? Oh, very much, yeah. Uh -huh. No, I mean, of course, there was more to it than that, and it was, it was emotional warmth and emotional openness, not so much shouting, because the family I am still a part of, and I still regard it as my family, even though my, my husband and I are divorced, we're very good friends, and I celebrate Passover with them. And uh, I, they were not screamers, but they were very warm and very open. And, you know, the same things uh, draw me to India. And I always feel that there's a great deal of commonality between the things I love about India, particularly Bengali society, and the things I love about American Jewish society. Uh-huh, uh-huh. So let's talk, since we're talking about emotion and Jews, let's talk about a little bit about the relationship between emotion and justice, which you've written about at some length. As you've noted, the Stoics had this sense that uh, emotion was, for the most part, not a good idea, and they wanted to do whatever they could to extirpate it from human life. Uh, but you have argued, I think, passionately and eloquently against that worldview. The, the Stoics, they made room in their worldview for mercy, for example, but not compassion. Um, but having said that, I mean, given the argument that you're making, I wonder how you can have a compassionate system of justice and also an impartial one. Well, that's a huge issue. And in fact, I'm writing about it right now because mm -hmm. I'm writing a book about the role of emotions in political life. I mean, the first thing to say is that I think you, the Stoics start in the right place because they ask what the emotions are. Are, and they give an answer that's really pretty good, which is that they involve appraisals of value, that when you have grief, it's because you have judged in some level, maybe not intellectually, but at some level of your being, that this is a very important person. Mm -hmm. You don't grieve for the loss of a toothbrush or a paperclip, but, or, and indeed, you don't grieve for people you never met. But grief has a, a, an idea of value in it. Well, so does compassion. It involves the idea that the other person's suffering is serious and significant, and that it's something of concern to you. So that's a problem, as you say, because impartiality suggests that we shouldn't begin from our own point of view, that we should have principles that apply absolutely equally to everyone. And the Stoics really, that was one of their reasons. They had many, but one of their reasons for getting rid of compassion was their interest in impartiality. Yes. But the trouble is, I think, that human life is based on the personal point of view. We, we start 
as infants with close attachments to particular people. We also start with an animal heritage that we now know a lot about, which um, does involve compassion, but in a very narrow circle. And so I think it's clear that developmentally we have to build out from the meanings that we understand and try to extend it to the whole world. If we jump over that and just try to say, well, have the same rules for everyone, we risk having an impartiality that's empty of urgency. And uh, Marcus Aurelius, the Stoic philosopher who was trying to run an empire on the basis of an impartiality without any love, I mean, he records in his journals that life ended up seeming meaningless to him, that people look like just insects or rats running for shelter. The sense of them as human required understanding what might make a human being lovable, and that he had lost that when he lost his partiality. So I think now, with all the research that has been done about compassion, and there's some very good research, that's been validated. That is, that people get to compassion through a vivid particular narrative. And it is a problem about how to relate that to impartial justice. But we have to balance and have a dialogue between the two rather than just throwing out the particular. And I think the right way to do it is through law. Yeah. Well, I guess the question is, if you make room for compassion, how much can you trust it? I mean, uh, for I mean, just speaking for myself, yeah. I could easily see myself having compassion, say, for a battered woman who has murdered her abusive husband. I could see myself having compassion for that person. Uh, by contrast, someone say like Martha Stewart, a person of privilege who couldn't seem to follow the rules. Now that's an emotional response. How much should I trust that response to get to a just verdict? Well, I think compassion is the beginning but not the end. So you start with those compassionate responses, and then we have a public dialogue that asks, what is the problem here? How serious a problem is it? And ultimately, over time, that will lead to improvement in laws. So we start with stories about battered women and what they're suffering, and then we figure out what can law do about that, because we don't want to rely on the individualized response for the reason you give. And in fact, just think about how the Victorian era tried to run charity by personal compassion. It was terrible because they were the deserving poor and the undeserving poor. And so instead, we have a tax system. Mm -hmm. However, if we lose the compassion, we don't keep the tax system. And we see that today. And, uh, you know, when people no longer connect to other people through a sense of common humanity and concern for their experience, then, and I think this is all around us, the good laws that we at one time might have had get eroded and eventually cut back. And so we need both. Mm -hmm. I'm curious, so you may recall in 2009, Republicans made a big deal of how President Obama used the word empathy when he nominated Sonia Sotomayor to the United States Supreme Court. I'm wondering what you made of that. I think it was part of a very weird dialogue about American masculinity in which a real man can be very aggressive and has to display anger at certain moments but is not supposed to be empathetic. And, of course, if a woman uh, is being confirmed to the Supreme Court, she she almost Mm. has to show that she has the manly virtues. No, I think empathy is is crucial for a judge. Uh, Of course, it's not the whole story because you can have empathy and not have the right values. You could understand 
understand somebody's situation very well and use that to torture them all the more successfully. You have a lot of gr nice things to say about compassion. As far as I can tell, you don't have anything nice to say about disgust. And you allude, for example, to how uh, juries have not served the cause of justice very well when they let their disgust influence their judgment of homosexuals. And I think that's an excellent point. But on the other hand, uh, you know, when I saw those photographs of uh, servicemen and service women torturing people at Abu Ghraib, I felt then, and frankly, I still feel now, that disgust was exactly the right response. You, you disagree? Yeah. Uh, it's not that I think only the nice emotions are helpful, because uh, I think anger is often very, very helpful. But the difference between anger and disgust is this, that anger is the reaction to a harm. And when you get angry at something, as I get angry when I see those photographs, you're thinking, what a terrible violation of human dignity there is there. And that's very pertinent to lawmaking, no matter what your theory of criminal law is. Uh, certainly harm is definitely going to be a part of it. Uh, but I happen to go further with John Stuart Mill, and I think that harm is a necessary condition for legal regulation. So if something simply disgusts you, but there's no harm going on, then you have no business nosing around in it. Just go away if you don't like it. So when your neighbors are engaging in a consensual sexual act, and they're consenting adults, no one's being harmed, you stick your nose in and you say, oh, that disgusts me. Yeah. Well, that's just not pertinent to law. Just go go about your own business, is what I would say. Uh, yeah. Now, about the, the juries who see gory things and they're disgusted, you know, sometimes that's correlated with the level of harm that's done, but sometimes not. And so prosecutors can easily manipulate the disgust of a jury by showing a lot of blood and gore. But the severity of a homicide is not always so neatly correlated with the amount of blood and gore. For example, felony murder, like the murder of a bank officer during a holdup, won't usually be found disgusting, but it's one of the worst kinds of homicides. So I just think it's often a red herring that confuses people. So you don't think disgust can be educated the way compassion can be educated to be, you know, to serve a, a constructive purpose? Well, you know, the research that's been done on disgust by Paul Rosen and his students shows that disgust is a has a cognitive content, and it involves the idea of contamination by something that's a reminder of our animal nature. So the primary objects of disgust are bodily fluids, feces, urine, but also corpses, things that remind us of our animality and mortality. And then those properties tend to get projected outwards onto people and groups who come to emblematize the merely animal, the base, the disgusting. And so we find that uh, always certain properties like ooziness, gore, stickiness are the things that trigger disgust. And of course, sometimes they're really present, but sometimes, as in the case of uh, racism directed at Af African Americans, those properties are merely fantasized. And so too with gays and lesbians. So you read the pamphlet literature attacking them, and you find these grotesque fantasies about how these are people whose acts mingle feces and blood, and they're bringing germs into the United 
states and so and uh, so what you see is people are living out a kind of fantasy that's really all about their own bodies and their vexed relation to their own bodies and they're just using the others as an occasion for this uh, fantasy uh, I don't think that's pertinent to law you know and so I just think it would be it, it discussed as problematic enough at the basic level because what we're doing is expressing an aversion to something that we are something that we're made of I'm just wondering in the larger scheme of things whether compassion or anger has a better track record than disgust I mean one of the uh, one of your colleagues actually I guess his former colleague Dan Cahan now at Yale he argues that disgust is essential to condemning cruelty you would say he's misguided in that view well I do argue against him at length in my book um, I think sometimes Dan trades on a linguistic fuzziness which the researchers have long observed that sometimes the word disgust and the word anger are used interchangeably and uh, but sometimes you know he's just um, focusing on the kind of case where blood and gore move the jury to find a homicide unusually bad and, and here's where I would come back with what I said to you before well sometimes that's a particularly bad thing but we don't right. think that that's true in every case and what we really need to do is inspect the nature and magnitude of the harm mm-hmm. and sometimes the disgust stops us from doing that so I mean there are people who are disgusted by homosexuals there are other people who are disgusted by homophobes one in your mind is not more legitimate than the other well, look, the people who are disgusted by homosexuals often want to deprive them of civil rights. Right. So uh, people who are disgusted by homophobes, uh, I don't think on the whole want to deprive them of equal civil rights. So I think there is a moral difference, and it's a pretty big one. Uh, but, uh, you know, if people who are disgusted by other people don't want to associate with them socially because of a, a, a bodily reaction to a kind of contamination, well, okay, I think that is a problem. And that one of the things I I love about our law school is that there isn't any of that around, that we all associate with people of very different political persuasions and different views about all these things, and we um, have friendship and uh, good arguments and, uh, and mm-hmm. so on. So, so at the level of at least social community, I do think that the person who's simply disgusted by homophobes and who doesn't want to meet them and doesn't want to have an argument yeah. is not doing so well, but, but, but probably doesn't want to uh, dragoon the law in to the service of right, that. Right. There was a case uh, back in 1990 that you write about, uh, Commonwealth versus Carr. And the defendant in that case was a man who murdered two lesbians. And he had a story. He said that his mom was a lesbian, abandoned him when he was a child, blah, blah, blah. And you could, you may find that, that story, you know, a, a reason to be sympathetic or not. But uh, there was a, a point in the trial uh, where the judge had to make a decision whether or not to allow psychological testimony about that, and the judge ruled not to allow that evidence, that testimony. And you feel the judge uh, made the right decision. And I was a little uh, surprised by that, because it sort of leaves unchecked, it seems to me, without that testimony, the disgust that jurors might feel toward this defendant. Well, see, what was going on, legally speaking, was that he was on trial
trial for first-degree murder, yep. and he was trying to get a reduction to voluntary manslaughter by introducing a reasonable provocation defense. Now, um, in fact, Kahan and I wrote an article about this. Um, what you have to show is that the provoker was the one that you unleashed your violence against, and that the provocation was reasonable, which typically is analyzed in terms of the reactions of a reasonable person. Mm -hmm. And so, therefore, social norms about what a reasonable person would do and what would provoke tremendous anger, usually it's anger, in a reasonable person are, are, are what allow you to decide whether that defense is, can go forward or not. Now, the typical occasions are, let's say, somebody rapes your child and then you haul off and you assault them or maybe even kill them. Uh, well, there people will say, yeah, you're still guilty of something, but because the provocation was so severe and it's the sort of thing that we want to encourage in society and it's the sort of thing a reasonable person would be provoked uh, by, then, then we'll reduce it to voluntary manslaughter. Right. So what the judge was saying is that if you're disgusted by the sexual acts of some people who are in your vicinity because you happen to be watching them, that's not the sort of thing that would provoke anger in a reasonable person. And he said this. He said a reasonable person would just discontinue his observation and leave the scene. And so that was the point, that this is does not fit the canonical definition of reasonable provocation. Whether it's disgust or anger, it just doesn't fit. But couldn't the car have been suffering from a deformity of character that he had limited control over? And if so, how could the jury, you know, judge that question, answer that question without psychological testimony? Well, that would have been a different defense. And he didn't, his attorney did not put forward that kind of diminished capacity defense. There's a, a kind of homosexual panic defense yeah. that is a diminished capacity defense. But this was provocation. And so therefore it involved the notion of reasonableness. And what the attorney had to show was that it was the reaction of a reasonable person. So maybe the attorney made a mistake. Ah. But anyway, that, ah. uh, that's... Uh, yeah, the other thing, well, we then have to argue about what kinds of diminished capacity defenses we want to allow. Mm -hmm. As a philosopher, it seems to me that your bias, if I can call it that, is that the examined life is superior to the unexamined one. Is that a fair accusation? Yes. <laughs> <laughs> so if that's true, um, I mean, I know you're not anti-religious, certainly, mm -hmm. but are you anti-fundamentalist? You know, I'm what John Rawls, the great philosopher, calls a political liberal. Was your mentor? Was, was well, it not exactly, but yeah. I mean, he was yeah. there at Harvard. Yeah, and I yeah. studied with him a little. Um, yeah, you know, political liberal—that is, political principles for a pluralistic society—need to be based on things around which citizens from many different religions can converge. And he used the phrase "overlapping consensus" because we all have our comprehensive views, but let's hope we can overlap in this space. Now, I guess I think that in many parts of people's lives, fine for them to be let their decisions be made by authority, by faith, by things that don't involve rational argument. And I really think it's, it's a bad thing when philosophers denigrate faith or authority. I just wrote an article about this because I think philosophers are biased in the direction of reason, of course, and, and they are, are often quite disrespectful of religious people who base their judgments on fundamentalism and so on. But 
in, a, in the public sphere where we have to talk to each other, I think there's no alternative but argument and, and that we really therefore need schools to teach the skills of argument because what we need is to listen to one another and to have a dialogue and uh, really not to let mere peer pressure and tradition and fashion hold sway, which so easily happens in a democracy. So I think it's not any denigration of the fundamentalist's desire to be a fundamentalist. It's just saying you are that, but you're also part of a pluralistic society. And therefore, we ask you to try to develop those virtues that make a dialogue in that society possible. But that dialogue could be viewed in and of itself as poisonous or subversive to these fundamentalist cultures, right? Well, I think usually it isn't. Uh, I mean, usually people who belong to traditionalist religions who have come to the United States and taken up residence here, um, you know, either they drop out like the Old Order Amish and they just kind of accept the structure but they don't partake in it, or they do partake in it, but then they realize that they're living with other people and they have to both listen and learn and try to come to some degree of, of consensus about society's basic values. And I think that, you know, often there are fundamentalist parents who, for example, don't want their children to learn about the existence of other religions and other cultures. The famous case Mozart versus Hawkins was all about that. But there, I think the Sixth Circuit was absolutely correct to say there's a compelling state interest in requiring children to learn about the existence of other people in this society. That what could be more compelling, really, to try to understand the people you're living with if you're going to participate in that culture. Now, unfortunately, today, such a parent would just choose homeschooling, and homeschooling is so laxly regulated by most states, not all, but most, that probably that kid could go through life without learning about the existence of other religions. But I think that's a bad thing thing because it's in the soil of ignorance that these stigmas and fantasies that I've been talking about take root. There was a 1972 case that you've written about, Yoder versus Wisconsin. This was a case where Amish uh, parents wanted the right to pull their 14-year-old kids out of school to preserve their culture. It went to the United States Supreme Court, and the United States Supreme Court ruled unanimously in the parents' favor. Do you think they made the right decision? I think that was a very hard case, because I think the the old balancing test that was first established earlier, but this was a major instance of it, where the state has to show a compelling state interest in order to apply a substantial burden to a person's free exercise of, of religion, is the right test. And therefore, I do think the state had a very tall order to meet. And the question is, um, were they right mm -hmm. in thinking that there was uh, no compelling state interest there. I think a lot depends on what you think happens in those two years of education that the kids would be missing. Some people have written that it's in those years that children crucially develop the capacity for exit, for choice of a way of life, for autonomy, and so on. If that were true, then maybe the case was wrongly decided because the children were not having a capacity that, that it is the state's responsibility to develop. But the parents argued that it was a really serious burden because if the children didn't go to the community and, and were not educated in the community through the skills of community farming and so on, then the community would 
come to an end. I mean, it was going to be fatal for the survival of the community. Now, again, we have to ask, is that correct? But they argued the burden was heavy indeed, and so the state would have to have a compelling interest. I guess I think the evidence is, and the, the judges did observe this, that the Amish seem to conduct their lives, uh, you know, pretty pretty autonomously and pretty successfully in our society. And the idea that some crucial set of options is lacking that would be imparted in those years, not so clear. I actually think, having been a parent, that the years of 14 to 16 are years of peer pressure and dating and maybe not so much about learning the skills of autonomy. So, um, So I'm not sure. But I think probably the compelling state interest was not fully demonstrated. And so, mm-hmm. so I'm, I'm inclined to think that the case was rightly decided. Mm-hmm. This whole area of uh, to what extent justice applies within the family is a fascinating one to me. Yeah. I mean, let's, let's take, for example, the, an Amish, uh, Amish parents who have a 14-year-old daughter who's been impregnated by her 17-year-old boyfriend, and the parents want her to give birth, and the child does not want to give birth. Does the state have any legitimate say in that? Should the parents' uh, wishes be respected in that example? Well, that's really one of the hardest kinds of cases. I actually, you know, I, I think the parents' wishes should be heard, but for all sorts of reasons having to do with basic bodily health, for one thing. I mean, a child who gives birth at the age of 14 is really at risk for health damage, uh, but but also for um, just life damage, damage to options, damage to education. I do think the child's wishes should, should also be respected. Now, in the end of the day, of course, the problem is that that child if she breaks with her parents, will have nowhere to go. And it's very, very tough for that child if she does that. So it, these cases are all are rare for that reason. But I guess I think on balance, uh, the parents' wishes ought not to trump the child's wishes in that case, given that the, the evidence is that there's such severe danger to health for the child. Um. Let me ask you about uh, something you wrote in your book, For Love of Country. Uh, You argue in that book that national boundaries don't have a lot of moral significance and uh, that our highest allegiance should be to humankind. If, if that's true, does that mean in the larger scheme of things when you have uh, allegiances, that, allegiances that conflict with one another, the more local the attachments, the more expendable they are? Well, actually, I've changed my view a little bit on this. And what I now think, for the reasons we've already discussed, is that you won't have a world concern that's worthy the name if you try to extirpate local and national attachment and if you don't um, give them enough room and enough respect. So what we really want to aim at is a kind of intelligent dialogue between the partiality that we rightly have for our own children and our own nation and the respect we have for all human beings everywhere who deserve a basic minimum level of welfare. I think the family is a good analogy. 
because we all think that it's right for us to love our children most and to favor our children in some ways over other children, but I think most of us don't think that it would be right to favor our children in ways that deprive all children of basic nutrition, basic opportunities in life, and so on. So I, that's the way I think about the world. I think it would be great if everyone in the world has access to the human capabilities on my list up to a minimum threshold level. But I also think that countries, it's right to love your own country most, and it's fine. And maybe, um, indeed, it's necessary, because mm -hmm. you're not going to get world concern yeah. except from that. I mean, like, take, for example, uh, Robert E. Lee. You know, he supposedly was against slavery, was against the idea of secession. But in the end, when he had to decide which side he was going to fight for in the Civil War, he chose uh, his home, his, the South, to fight for, even though he was against the very, thing, the very things that the South was fighting for. From a moral standpoint, did he make the right decision? Oh, well, I mean, I think there is a rare case where you actually don't know what your country is mm -hmm. and you have a choice. And I think uh, probably he did make the wrong choice because the U.S. has always defined itself as a nation not in terms of ethnicity or geography, but in terms of political ideals. And indeed, I think that's a great advantage of U.S. and Indian forms of nationalism over most European forms of nationalism, which are usually based on geography, language, ethnicity. So U.S. has always said to be an American, you know, you can come from here, you can come from there, you can have this home or that home, but giving allegiance to certain principles is what makes you an American. So I don't think that he followed that advice, you know. He didn't so was there, was, was there any honor at all in his decision? Oh, I think he was a wonderful man, and I wouldn't impugn his personal integrity at all or his brilliance. But I think he made a big mistake because he didn't follow principle through all the way into how it would define his own nationality. Mm -hmm. And, you know, I think if you look at India today, you find very, in some ways, people of integrity who take part in the Hindu right, who say India is a Hindu first nation, there should not be equal civil rights for people of other religions. In fact, there's just today, there's a controversy because one such person whom I happen to know has been teaching at Harvard in the summer school and the students found out what he had written and they were objecting to him and they said, you shouldn't have hired him. Well, anyway, you know, he does say that Muslims shouldn't have equal civil rights and I think that that's not only wrong morally, but it's actually anti-patriotic because like it or not, India is founded around ideals of inclusion, equality. You know, I'm sure he would say that was a mistake from the start uh, because lots of people did at the time. But like it or not, that's what the Constitution is. That's what the nation is. And if you are an Indian, then you either try to change that through peaceful means or you um, mm -hmm. adhere to that. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. You uh, wrote a book called The Frontiers of Justice, and in that book you talk about how we should treat the disabled, uh, you talk about global justice, and you talk about living in harmony with animals. It's on the third subject that I think probably you're on the farthest edge of that yes. frontier. Um, you, talk, uh, you suggest in that book that sports hunting should be banned. Uh, you suggest that sport fishing should be banned, which would upset a lot of fly fishermen. Uh, you also raise the question whether humans have a duty to police the animal world to protect vulnerable animals from predators. Yeah. Do you actually think we have that duty? Well, 
see, I think people have a very bogus conception of nature sometimes in these debates that so long as it happens in nature, it's lovely and fine. Well, actually, John Stuart Mill had a great essay on this topic. Nature is a cruel place where creatures tear each other limb from limb. And so out west, you know, if the elk population grows too big, people think, oh, we don't want to soil our hands with killing some elk, so we'll let the wolves come in and do it. And that's nature. So that's great. And I just think that's stupid because wolves uh, cause a much more painful death for the elks than a bullet in the brain. So really, the alternative that would be merciful for all would be to pursue research in animal contraception because they can control animal populations through artificial means. There are many problems with it because if animals are always in season, uh, well, for example, elephants, my great favorites, if the elephants use contraception, the females are always in season, therefore they're mounted all the time time. The males are so heavy that this creates physical problems for the females and so on. But so it's an imperfect science. It's in its infancy. But, you know, one step in to nature means 50 steps in. I mean, we can't avoid the conclusion that we're implicated in what goes on Hmm. in the lives of all species everywhere in the world now, because human activities determine what the habitat is, what goes on in that habitat, what nutrition the animals have. So the only alternative to just complete neglect and uh, chaos is for us to exercise intelligent stewardship, which means things like contraception, protection of habitats, and so forth. And uh, so I think this uh, idea that we'll just let the animals tear each other limb from limb rather than figuring out what we actually want to do, mm-hmm. that, that was what I was criticizing. I see, there. I see. In your capabilities approach, you identify 10 central capabilities, uh, among them bodily integrity, bodily health, imagination, emotional health, etc. What, if anything, does the capabilities approach have to say about abortion? Well, for a long time I said nothing about it because it's really, uh, a capability is an entitlement. It's a politically grounded entitlement. It belongs to a person. And the theory in its most basic form focuses on adult human beings. Now, it's only recently that I've begun to talk about capabilities even of children because I think that's a very complicated topic for reasons that we've already gotten into. Uh, We want to think of them as future adults and future citizens, but we also want to think of them as having some rights in in their own right as uh, existing beings who are more vulnerable than other beings. So my colleague Roz Dixon and I are writing a paper on that right now. Now, we've also written a paper on abortion. So we just did that, and, and it's just about to come out. And I've, I've always avoided the topic because I think, first of all, it's a very tough topic, and I do think it's one where there's such deep disagreement among yeah. religious and other comprehensive views that politics has to respect that. But I think, on the whole, where the capabilities approach would go is in the direction of having a very complicated balancing test in which the the health of the mother would certainly be very important and would be protected, but on the other hand, past a certain age of development, the, the fetus would also acquire some entitlements. And so basically, we're sort of where uh, Casey versus Planned Parenthood is in, in the sense of having uh, deference to the, the life and, and even health of the mother and thinking that laws that restrict 
the opportunity of the mother to protect her health are very likely unconstitutional. But we don't deny that the fetus at a late stage of development has some entitlements. And so that means that if there is a well-crafted law against partial birth abortion, I, I do think that the one that was in question in the, in, in the recent Supreme Court case is not well-crafted because it's too broad and it allows things that do um, cause risk to the health of the mother. But a well-crafted and narrow such law would, uh, for me, be okay. People who recognize, who favor the right of a woman to have an abortion describe themselves as pro-choice. But as you know, in many countries, women use that choice uh, when they determine through the use of ultrasound technology that they're having girls. And the reason they have abortions at that point is because girls are not as valued as boys in these societies. Doesn't that put the, uh, the whole pro-choice argument in a very different light? Oh, sure. And it's amazing how, uh, you know, American feminists don't really think about that at all, but when you get into a country that has that problem, feminists are often inclined to be very wary of abortion rights generally. And indeed, some Indian feminists have wanted to criminalize abortion because they think they can't get at the sex election any other way. Now, I would rather not sweep that broadly, but I think really the right course is to make abortion on grounds of sex selection illegal. Now, most countries already make it illegal. So many European countries, for example, have explicit prohibitions on sex-selective abortion. But, but then, it seems to me that could be know, easily yeah, gamed. so it can be know? easily gamed. Then what do you do? <laughs> so most Indian states by now make access to knowledge of the sex of the fetus hmm. illegal. Now, that is pretty difficult. I mean, it really does sweep too broadly right. because you have legitimate reasons for wanting amniocentesis, but they, some of them have written those medical exceptions into their laws. And doctors have actually been fined and in one case imprisoned for divulging this. Often it's done in these indirect ways. So you give somebody either a pink pen or a blue pen mm-hmm. to sign the paper and that tells them what their child is. So I think that's uh, the state has to police that more aggressively and I'm afraid the problem is not confined to poor people where you can at least understand because girl child means a big dowry and it means a dowry that's going to be taken out of the family and a child who will go elsewhere and not support the family in its old age so it's this tremendous economic drain on a poor family but actually it's a middle class problem and it's been recently studied and it's very clear now that it's a middle class problem at least as much as it is a another kind of problem. I think the state needs to think about incentives. The state of Haryana, for example, offers a cash payment to the family of any girl child who reaches the age of 18. Mm -hmm. And that's a smart strategy. We don't know yet how well it's going to work. It's too soon to tell. But it's uh, on the right track. Because then their incentive is not only not to have the abortion, but to give adequate nutrition and medical care in the early years, which you know has long been a tremendous source of excess mortality of female children. So I think working on incentives, working to create more educational opportunities, Opportunities, employment opportunities for girls, which means often things so simple as make sure the school has a bathroom. In West Bengal, where my colleague Amartya Sen did a huge study of education, one primary reason that girls are not sent to school by their parents is no bathrooms. 
And so they would have to, um, you know, impugn their modesty to urinate in the school. So um, just fix things that you can fix and don't... Um, you know, don't just put pressure on the criminal practices that probably you can't entirely regulate. You know, as we're speaking, there's been a lot of craziness going on in Washington, <laughs> and uh, I don't hear politicians talking too much about Aristotle or Kant or John Rawls, but when politicians these days do talk about philosophers, more often than not, I hear them talking about Ayn Rand, uh, Paul Ryan, for example, the uh, the. Republican House uh, Chairman of the House Budget Committee. Uh, he says that Ayn Rand made a profound impact on his uh, worldview. Um, you know, I, I tried. I tried reading one of her books, and I think at best she's a second-rate novelist. But as a philosopher, I'm wondering whether you think she's someone who deserves to be taken seriously. I read The Fountainhead a long, long time ago, and I actually read some of her more uh, technical philosophical works. I think she's a very bad philosopher. What she writes about things like aesthetic judgment and the synthetic analytic distinction is, is, is quite ridiculous. I never read Atlas Shrugged. I, I, I've been tempted because I like audiobooks, and in um, audible.com you get one book per month, and the longest thing, the best buy, therefore, for your one credit per month is Atlas Shrugged because it's 62 hours long and you get the, the same for that as you get for a 30-hour Dickens novel. However, I resisted that temptation. <laughs> I went with Les Miserables, which is only good, 60 good hours choice, long. Good choice, good choice, yeah. <laughs> no, I, I think, you know, uh, if you want good libertarian thought, you should start with the thinkers of the social contract. Now, of course, when you do that, you find out that they're actually very complicated and they're not uh, cardboard cutouts. Like, I think Ayn Rand is more appealing to some people because she is a cardboard cutout. Mm -hmm. But if you look at Locke or you look at Mill, I mean, they're not that. And in fact, Mill even says you don't own property that's needed for the urgent needs of somebody else. So he even redefines ownership. But he was a social democrat in, in, in his uh, work about social welfare. So um, I think it's very hard for them to find a major philosopher who lines up um, in, in their, on their side, so they find Anne Rand. But oh, I think they should. They would be better off studying people who are good. You know, uh, no Robert, matter if they Robert don't agree Nozick, with it. That, yeah. Well, yeah. Robert Nozick is yeah. certainly you know miles better than. But Rand. he said things like taxation is forced labor. I think he stepped away from that. Yeah, I mean, he said that in his first book, and then he really did in yeah. a big way step away from it. Yeah. The problem with, with Nozick, I, I admired Nozick a lot, and he was my colleague, and I, I really had the greatest uh, admiration for him, but I think in that book, the problem is the starting point is never examined. He just says people have rights. He doesn't say where they come from, what their source is, how qualified or unqualified are they. And so, you know, if you once accept the starting point, certain things follow, but 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 uh, not not otherwise. And uh, I, you know, I don't think that book has stood the test of time all that well. Let's talk a little bit about Richard Posner. He's a colleague of yours. Uh, he's also a federal judge. I think at last count, he wrote uh, what ten thousand books. Uh, 
but, but, but one of those books is called The Problematics of Moral and Legal Theory. And in that book, and I, I don't want to under, overstate this, I, I don't think he's saying that moral philosophers are worthless, but I, I do think that he's essentially saying that they're useless. Uh, he writes that the deliberative techniques that moral theorists deploy are, quote, too feeble, both epistemologically and rhetorically, to shake moral intuitions. He compares moral philosophers to chiropractors merely rearranging our prejudices. He argues that there are no interesting moral universals, that all morality is essentially local. And if that's not enough, he presses the argument that immersion in moral theory can actually have a corrupting influence because it gives people the tools to better justify their bad behavior. Is he 100% wrong on all of that? Well, I wrote a critique of that book in the Harvard Law Review, and I, I don't think it's one of Dick's most successful books because <laughs> I think the trouble is that he dislikes moral philosophy so much that he can't spend much time with it. And what he never did was to really get deeply into the thought and work of the people that he's attacking. And so the result is it's extremely superficial, and he'll, he'll make fun of people by mentioning one sentence in a long, complicated argument without trying to figure out what the argument is. You know, So I think he should have spent more time with moral philosophy, but, but, but he just wasn't going to do that. And so therefore, I, I just prefer to read him on topics like literature uh, or other things where I think you get uh, get Posner at his best. Mm. But I think the question he begs, that it's an interesting one, is can moral philosophy you know, uh, really help you deal more effectively with genuine moral dilemmas? Uh, I mean, there was a case uh, that I, I used to be taught in law schools. I don't know if it's, any, if it's taught any longer. It's called uh, Regina versus Dudley and Stevens. Do you know that? case. Sure, sure. This was a late 19th yeah. century case where these survivors in a lifeboat, uh, there's, the food is running out, the water is running out, and unless they're incredibly lucky, they're all going to die, mm -hmm. or they could eat the weakest person on the boat, who happened to be the cabin boy. They decided to kill and eat the cabin boy. There was a, they ultimately were rescued. There was a trial. Uh, the judge determined that the necessity defense didn't exactly wash, but they could have faced the death penalty. They ultimately only spent six months behind bars. So, but my question is: Say you're the commander of of that lifeboat. Does knowing Immanuel Kant's categorical imperative, or being familiar with John Stuart Mill's utilitarianism, or Martha, Martha Nussbaum's uh, capabilities approach, would any of that make the decision any easier? Well, look, I think if you do philosophy well, it's not a situation ethic. Uh, it's not going to be narrowly honed in on the particular case, as if it was a missile. You, know, you, you have to be interested in theory, mm. and you have to be interested in the complex architecture of a theory. And once you have a theory, then you can, and, and you look at all the different theories, you try to figure out which one satisfies you most. When you've done that for quite a while, then you can figure out how you can handle a particular case within that theory. Uh, but and, and when I do teach moral philosophy to law students, it's always that way. And I really want them to think at the level of theory, not to just uh, keep their nose to the ground and, and be talking all, only about particular cases. Now, I guess I think that... Um, 
if Posner had gone ever to the hospital, which, I mean, fortunately, he's one of the world's healthiest people and he's never been near a hospital, um, he would see an, a profession in which the input of philosophers has transformed what's going on, and I think transformed in a very good way. And uh, the reason is that up until about 19... Mid-1970s, when the first Harvard dissertation, Cicela Bach did a dissertation on medical ethics, and that was the first time that that had been done in a philosophy department of a major university. Uh, Doctors just did what they wanted to do, and they were very arrogant, as doctors often are, and they just decided that they would call the shots and they would follow their own uh, instincts and, and, and interests. But the whole idea that there was such a thing as patient's autonomy patients' rights. That was just not on the table at that time. And, and since then, because philosophers like Cicely Bach have brought in a Kantian perspective, and now every medical student has to learn utilitarianism, Kantian ethics, and has to really, if it's done well, and it isn't always done well, but if it's done well, they have to think about all these things theoretically. Then when they get to that decision point, they realize that it's much more complicated and they're not just empowered to enact whatever in their lordly way they think. And and getting the doctors to have greater humility before the problem of decision is certainly one thing that moral philosophy has achieved. Now, that doesn't mean the decisions are always good, but boy, things are a lot better now because people suddenly realize, oh, autonomy is a value and I better pay attention to that. And that's something doctors are, are, are not inclined to do. You know, I once interviewed uh, John Yu. Uh, mm-hmm. Does that name ring? Sure, the I guy know. who wrote. He visited here in the law school. The guy who wrote the torture memos. Yeah. Uh, he said to me that you can't have any responsibility in government without being a consequentialist. And I don't know if he gave me this example or not, but he could easily have. Uh, you know, you, you've got a plane that's uh, been hijacked by terrorists and it's heading toward the White House. In the end, you're going to blow up the plane. You, you need to be. And in fact, uh, the New Yorker did a piece uh, a few weeks back uh, about Obama. Headline was The Consequentialist. Does he have a point? Well, I guess I think any kind of deontological or principle-based ethic needs a consequential override. So if if the consequences are going to be dire enough, Mm. we should not go along with Kant, who really did say, let justice be done, though the earth should perish. He did write that in in Latin, indeed. Uh, It was pretty uh, extreme. Yeah, no, we shouldn't (laughs) do that. But, uh, of course, sometimes we can too easily fool ourselves into judging that the consequences will be very bad as a way of giving ourselves permission to do something that's bad. So one of the things that very sensitive, good philosophical consequentialists often say about torture is, yes, there are some situations in which torture is morally justifiable, but for pragmatic reasons, we should have a bright line rule so that people will not do it, because most of the time, when they do it, it's not for the right reasons. Yeah, and it's a a, a very slippery slope there, right? Yeah, exactly. And I mean, it's an old story. Uh, Grotius actually said that about humanitarian intervention. He said most of the reasons that people have for intervening in in the affairs of another state are bad. Mm -hmm. They involve self-aggrandizement. So we should probably have a bright line rule that only in these explicit circumstances, genocide, etc., should we ever do that. And I I think that's basically right, that that if we give politicians too much wiggle room, they often make very bad decisions. Mm -hmm. 
We only have about 30 seconds. I probably should have asked this question sooner, but I'll ask it now. What exactly is the meaning of life? <laughs> oh, I, I think that, uh, you know, it's just a question each person has to answer for themselves. And, and you know, for me, it's so many things. It's loving people. It's doing your work. It's singing. I was, you know, so I couldn't have a single answer. Professor, this was a, just a, a treat. Thank you so Thank much. Thank you very much.